Please open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. This is a, a new series we're beginning in Titus. It's called Church Basics. Church Basics. We'll be uh, looking at it in three different chapters, three different parts, once a month. Um, you might be wondering, um, this is the, the normal time I, once a month I'm sharing, but um, Pastor Stephen and his family aren't here today because uh, one of the members of their family tested positive for COVID um, and then subsequently posted, tested negative. So odds are that everything is, that there's, there isn't any COVID in their home. Uh, but uh, they're having cold symptoms. They're staying safe and staying away right now. So, but you will see them back soon. We praying for them. We'll be in Titus chapter one. We'll be going through the whole chapter. Marriage is the season that we're in right now. Uh, Justin and Alyssa will be getting married next week. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Nathan Williams and Ellen Abel um, became Mr. and Mrs. Williams yesterday, so that was exciting. Yeah. The, the ceremony was beautiful. Um, their love, it, it was fun to just watch them stare at each other. Um, their, their love glorified God, uh, reflected the image of Christ's love for his church. Um, and I assume, I don't see them here today, they're in marital honeymoon bliss somewhere right now. The, the vibrance and life of a new marriage, it is something behold. I think it's really refreshing. Um, but we do know, as soon as one takes their vows, there are attacks against them from without, and there's skirmishes that happen within. And it, it takes effort, it takes work to maintain um, uh, the marital vows. You have to remind yourself uh, of the commitment, the love, um, the, the vows that, they, that Nathan and Ellen took yesterday. And um, you have to then not just remind yourself of those ba- vows, but practice them in word and in deed and in action. And it may, it, it, health of a marriage takes, um, it requires diligence and effort. Uh, when my wife and I were first married, it did not long, take very long for me to cause trouble. <laughs> yeah, as a young uh, 20 two-year-old, right, almost 23, um, I ran over and killed a squirrel on our honeymoon. I, I, I was a sensitive man, and we drove up to Vancouver to take a trip to, um, a, a cruise up to uh, Alaska, and as we were driving through a park, a squirrel crossed across the road, and I think being funny, I'm going to pretend like I'm going to hit this, and I said, 10 points, and then I went, Doom. And ran over a squirrel. A cute, fuzzy squirrel I killed on our honeymoon. And my, my bride just stood there stunned. <laughs> Marriage, um, it, it, it needs maintenance <laughs> for health to happen. Paul's letter to Titus is a letter of love for the health of the church in Crete. Uh, the, Crete the Cretan church was under attack by false teachers um, and bad behaviors. And therefore, this church needed to be maintained. There needed to be help for it. As you know, marriage is an illustration. It, it really just is an illustration of Christ's love and his marriage to his church. And, and the marriage to Christ, though, is under attack. It's being faced with attacks all the time, since the very, very beginning. You read about it throughout the New Testament. So it requires work and maintenance. And that's what this letter to Titus is all about. 
It's reminding of the truth. It's reminding of the truth and exhorting to good behavior, against bad, bad behavior, with the purpose of maintaining health. And so in our first session of this church basic series, you're going to see the main idea for this point up on the screen. Healthy churches preach the truth. This will be verses 1 through 4. Healthy, purchase, healthy churches preach the truth by appointing elders, verses 5 through 9, and silencing deceivers, verses 10 through 16. This will be our main point this morning. So I'm going to read all of chapter 1, and then we'll go back and focus on that first part, healthy churches preach the truth in verses 1 through 4. So follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the Lord's word to us this morning. So Paul, verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul was a, he served, the, he served God. And, and he was an apostle. He was sent forth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the world. And he was a, a forerunner in that. But we know he wasn't all that way, that way, Right? He was once um, disobedient to God. He was once an enemy of God. And he was once one who persecuted Jesus and persecuted his church rather than, than helping. But Paul's life was transformed when he was confronted with the living Christ. He was changed because God's grace entered his life. And though Paul was a man who was angry and murderous inside, Jesus transformed his life. And so he became a follower of Jesus. And so in his journeys, he traveled around. And he, if you remember, we just, we just finished the book of Acts not long ago, right? And where did Paul end up at the book of Acts? It kind of just stopped at the end. Where was he? He was in Rome. He was Roman. He was in prison there. 
And the, the, the message kind of just stops and you're like, well, what happened after that? Well, church history tells us that likely Paul was, went before Caesar and then he was released and then he went to the islands of Crete, the island of Crete. And there he helped to establish some churches. And he had a companion, Titus. Read in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. It is most likely that Titus became a follower of Christ through the ministry of Paul. And Titus, we see his name mentioned at a couple places in the New Testament. We don't know a lot about him in Galatians and Corinthians. But he became Paul's companion. And he calls him a true child because Paul was like a father figure to him. And so he's, he's helping him there. And so as Paul left um, that Roman prison, went to Crete, Titus there remains to help the church. And that's what it says. Why it happens? Well, second half of verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. God's elect. The, the ones he's, he's chosen, the ones he's loved, those are his children. Those who are the bride of Christ. For the sake of their faith. Their, their faith, like in many ways, all Christian faith, all of our faith, are in danger at times. There's things that come against them. And for the sake of their faith, for the building up, for the longevity, for the faithfulness of their faith, Paul writes this letter to Titus to help them along. All right? He's going to help them to, to endure in the faith. And next you're going to see three phrases. And these three fa- phrases in many ways summarize this entire letter to Titus. And he gives us kind of, here's the pattern, why isn't it what? And this is what supports a healthy church. These three things are really key. And that they build upon each other. Okay? The first part says, and their knowledge of the truth. The truth, what is the truth? The truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and the message about his life is the gospel. The good news of salvation that those who are and know themselves to be sinners, know themselves to be weak. They trust in the life of Jesus who lived a perfect life, then died on behalf of them for substitution of their sins. He rose again, and those who believe in him then rise again with him in newness of life. This is the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And knowledge of that truth is essential to what it means to be a Christian. So above, you have to begin there. You have to begin simply beginning with the truth of the gospel. And it's not a truth or um, uh, kind of like the truth. It is the only truth. Jesus is the only way why people, well, by people can be saved. And any, any addition to that truth isn't truth. Any substitution from that truth is, is not truth. It's only the gospel that is true. So knowledge of that truth is so important. So a church that's healthy begins with the knowledge of the gospel found in the Bible. And then it says, though, which accords with godliness. This is going to be essentially important in this book, is that the truth always has actions that follow the truth. It's not true if it isn't followed with true life-living lessons. It's a results in godly living. It is that truth affects a person's life, proceeds from their life, works. I'm going to see that throughout Titus. There's this Belief and understanding the knowledge of the the truth, and then works and godliness that follow. All in the context of, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This life, it's not all there is. And the belief in the truth 
In some ways, it, it costs you. You have to give up things for it. You give your life to Jesus. But that truth is important and it matters because eternity matters. And one who believes that truth finds eternal life in Jesus. And it is a hope. The absolute expectation that coming good is taking place. And why? Because God, who never lies, has promised it to be so. That is what the Christian hopes in. That they are confident of. That this truth is in the life of Jesus and then worked out through good works and a person is transformed. They have a promise that they will find rest and peace and joy someday eternally with God. And that eternity in many ways begins today for every person who confesses Christ as Lord. Now, how does that message get out? Well, verse 3, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Preaching, it's important. It's kind of odd that preaching is important. You wouldn't think that God would use a, a, a strange person like me, a person that stumbles over his words at times and confused. Why would he use human beings to be the one who he preaches through? Couldn't he have sent an angel or something instead? But no, that's the way God does it. Preaching is important. We need preaching. If you want to be a healthy Christian, if you want to be part of a healthy church and be in a, you need, we need preaching. For the health of my body, I don't know if you do this as well, but I try to take my vitamins. I've got my little vitamin C container. I pop one of those in, uh, especially when I'm getting sick. I'll pop in three or four, two. Um, I exercise as best I can. I sleep, though I didn't sleep much last night. And I try to get some good food. And yesterday I went to the wedding, there was some good food. Health of the body, it has to be maintained. But, and more, how do we do that as a church? How do we individually incorporate the church? We need preaching. And how how does preaching work? Well, first, you have to listen to preaching, okay? So when, when, when you come to church, you want your ears tuned in, you want to be ready to receive. We don't come here in a whole hum, like, oh, I'm going to have to go. You want to receive, not just church, but in your home. You can preach to yourself. You come listening to God's word. You preach to yourself. You preach to your family. And you listen. You listen. All right? And then you'd examine. So in this world, there are, there's truth and there's many things that are not truth. You have to examine. How do you examine it? You compare preaching with God's word. Does it line up? Does it match? If it does, then you receive it with goodness. And how do you receive it? You receive it by applying it. By exercising it by letting it go. In the same way your body needs exercise, you need to exercise the truths of the word that's being preached to you. If you hear it and then go home and nothing happens, the word really didn't do anything. And then finally, proclaiming it. Preaching is a job of everyone. And I especially think preaching is a job of you to preach to yourself. You read your Bible and then you preach that truth to yourself over and over. Each day you preach yourself again. I know for myself, I wake up in the morning, my feelings or my emotions or some, I need, to, I need to preach God's word to myself to continue on. This is for the health of the church our, as a group and us individually. Um, this week, there was a, a brother that I was with and I was preaching to him. At the same time, I was preaching to myself. And we were talking about, in light of Christ's death, how when, when Christ died, he brought life. 
And I was preaching to him in our marriages, something that Ben preached yesterday. When we die to ourselves in our marriages, die to the little things we want or um, the thing that I, I really want to do today or I need, we bring life to our marriages. I was preaching that to him, and it was preaching to myself. I need that message. Preaching is important. Preaching is needed. It's for the health of the church. So, preaching. Preach the truth. See it applied in your life, all in the context of eternity. Now, within the church, there's two particular ways where preaching takes place that's very important. And the first one's appointing elders, and the second one is silencing deceivers. So now we're going to look at verses 5 through 9, talking about appointing elders. I'll read verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, elders, um, is, they are very important uh, for the sustaining of the health in the church. And if you look at the, like the whole of the New Testament, you begin to put it together, you can see who elders are, what, what, um, what they do, what they, what they, how, how they act, what, what they accomplish. Elders are not, they're not super Christians. <laughs> they're not super Christians. They are humans. They're frail. They have weaknesses. There's troubles. But elders are a seasoned example. There's someone that you can look to, to to follow or emulate. Many times that emulation is in that they, you see their weaknesses and they're admitting of those weaknesses and then receiving power from the Spirit. Okay? So Christians or elders are not super Christians. They are, though, it says here, in the plural. There's elders, appoint elders in every town. Crete probably had a number of churches in each town, and there was appointing of elders that took place in each of those towns. That's a sort of consistent throughout the New Testament. And if you also look throughout the New Testament, there's three terms that are similar, they're, they're synonymous, that really make up, help you understand who this is. The first one is elder, which we're seeing here, which means has a maturity. The second one is pastor. Pastor is a, a shepherd, one who guides or leads or cares for. And then the, the last term is an overseer. Some, some translations read bishop, but it's ones who lead and teach and um, manage the church. Now, this is, what a, this is sort of the characteristics of a, an elder. But what are, the, what are the qualifications to be an elder? That, that's important. And I think one of the ways that we go wrong today is this. When we think of the qualification of the elder, we think of skills and abilities. We think, can that pe- person preach charismatically? Um, uh, can they manage a church? Can they rally people? But the character qualities of the Bible lists, both here and 1 Timothy 3, are much more about character qualities than skills and abilities. Character qualities is much more important than skills and abilities. Let's look. Verse 6 tells us, If anyone is above reproach, also in the first part of verse 7 it says above reproach. So, above reproach, this doesn't mean that, uh, that an elder is perfect. I already said that, no. It means that they, their life is lived in such a way that they don't put a shame on the name of Christ. They can't be easily criticized. They're living a life that you say, that bears witness to Christ even in their weakness, all right? And then it says, the husband of one wife. There's going to be a couple of things about family here. The first one is the husband of one wife. So he's a man who has 
eyes for his wife. He's devoted to her. He's he's a one-woman man. His his eyes aren't wandering, all right? He's to her. This does not mean that he has to be married. Um, Think about Jesus, the greatest of elders. He wasn't married. Paul likely was not married. So it doesn't mean they have to be married, but the normal occasion is that a man is married, and when he's that way, he's to be devoted to his wife. Then verse 3, now talking about his children, and his children are, are believers. Now you also see most of you have a margin in the margin that says faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So first we need to like clarify a little bit. Um, when it says his children are believers, the, the understanding of that is this. God is the only one who can save, right? So um, if, if, if um, Conrad, he's an elder, and he says, unless, Conrad can't be unless he makes his children a believer. You can't place that upon him. But as a one who's over his family, who one oversees his family, intends his family, he should have his family in, in a way where they're not open to debauchery. So that means wild and crazy living. Or um, it says here also insubordination. They should respect his authority, and he should be over his house in a way that manages it well, that, that you see from his life how he manages his, his home well, and then that reflects how he can oversee the church well. Just an example. All right? This is how you see the rest. Now, I want to make one side comment here, and it has something to do with actually the children of elders and pastors. Seth, Rose, David, James. <laughs> Sometimes, as a child of a pastor elder, you can feel a certain weight, a certain weight to perform a certain way or to be a certain way. That weight shouldn't be on the child. That is something that they, they weren't given to have. Um, they are human like everyone else. Every child as a human, has sins and failings and troubles. And sometimes um, others can put that weight on them too. It's like, oh, you're the, the, pras- the pastor's kid or you're an elder's kid. You should act a certain way. We've got to be careful with that because it can put a burden upon a child that they're not meant to have. Right? So think about that when you're interacting with children that are under elders. Look at the elder's life and see, is he managing his house in a way that his children are uh, under his care and respect? But don't put a burden upon them that can harm them. And the same thing for you kids. Don't expect that out of yourselves. You're, you need Jesus just like anyone else. And you're like a soul. It's just important for no as a, as a church family. The next part of the qualification here says, um, down to middle of verse 7, there's going to be two things that he's not supposed to be and things that he is supposed to be. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Character qualities. Character qualities matter more than abilities and skills. And kind of the way to think about this and to look at this is, what if you had a pastor who was just plain arrogant? He's like, you know what? You guys are so lucky to have me. Man, I am God's gift to you, and um, be thankful for it. Or quick-tempered. There are so many times where maybe a pastor or an elder will take criticism, um, and if they snap back quickly, they're violent, both with their words or physically. Imagine having a, an elder that was that way, who would snap back or use foul language 
whatever the case might be. What if they're a drunkard? <laughs> they, tip the, they tip the wine bottle a little too much. It's actually probably not far to imagine. There, you've seen that throughout history. You can't make wise decisions when you're in, in, entrenched with wine and drink. Greedy for gain. Again, it's not hard to imagine. What if the pastor takes the tithes and offerings of his people and he uses those for his own gain? Or, maybe not even monetarily, but he his reputation he takes from. He, he wants gain by his reputation. What would that be with an elder or a pastor an overseer that looked like that. But imagine this, a pastor who's hospitable, one who takes people into their home who are in need and care, uh, one who's self-control, who takes criticisms or, or, or takes it maybe in a false accusation but is slow to speak and, and, and listens and tries to say, is, are, are there parts of the, that, are, that are being said true? How can I change this in my life? What about a self-controlled one? One who's upright, you can trust, holy, disciplined, able to stick with something and not give up through thick and thin. What if you had an elder or overseers that were like that? These are character qualities that matter, greater than abilities. This is for the health of the church, very important. Now, verse 9, though, it tells us one ability that's necessary for the elder, pastor, overseer. Verse 9, he must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The truth of the gospel is what's essentially important for the church. And so the main characteristic, the main ability that a pastor or an elder needs to have is to preach, to teach God's word, to know it and then to teach it. And that's both in the, in the positive, Here, here's what it is, let me explain it to you, and also the negative. That's wrong, stop saying that, and, and correct it. Be able to rebuke those things which contradict. If you look at the word, uh, my Bible reads the word sound, probably mostly, mine has a margin. It actually, it says the word sound is very similar to the word, I mean, it's similar. It, it, it's, a synonym is healthy. So for a healthy church, for a sound, sound doctrine in a church, it means that the, 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 the leader, the elder, needs to be able to teach to bring health. And that comes through the word of God. That's his responsibility. Now, this doesn't mean just from the pulpit. It means in counseling. It means in small groups. It means one-on-one situations. That's the role of the elder to help, um, first with character, and then and because their life has a certain weight to their, the reality of it, then they teach and instruct in a way which makes the truth all the more apparent. This is for the health of a church to maintain the health of a church. I want to exhort you who are elders here to look at your life and first and, fi- first and primarily not look at what you can do, your abilities, but first and foremost focus on your character. Make that character shaped into the image of Christ. For those who may want to be an elder someday, you pursue that. That's a good desire. Shape your life with character first, and then let the abilities come. That's important. And for you as a church, I exhort you, honor your elders. Help them. Come alongside them. Encourage them in their their, their weaknesses. Help them to to grow. Um, Make life easy for them. That would be blessing to them and to our church. Lastly, if you're battling sickness, 
what do you do? You often say, who else has battled the same thing? And you want to, you wanna, it's, it's helpful to talk to them. Think of your elders that way. They're fellow sufferers with you. They may have walked the walk a little bit longer or seen something a little bit differently. Walk with them in that way. See them as fellow sufferers in this journey we are to eternity with Christ. Humble men, hopefully growing more to the image of Christ. Verses 10 through 16 now help us see this last piece of health, the silencing of deceivers, the silencing of deceivers. Now, as we've been talking about, knowledge of the truth of Jesus is the foundation of a healthy church. So, what is the, what, what's the major problem? Is if the truth is skewed, if false teachers come in, that's a grave danger to any church that their doctrine changes, that they leave the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, false teachers would not be a problem if they walked in the door, there was a big beacon that said, beep, 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 false teacher, false teacher, false teacher. It, it wouldn't be a problem. But that's not what happens. False teachers come in disguised. They look like respectable. They look, they look, they look like knowledgeable. But they're hidden. They're disguised as qualified leaders. So Paul, in verses 10 through 16, he's helping Titus learn how to expose those who are, I would say, anti-elders. This is like the anti-elders section. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There's, he says, many that come in. And they're insubordinate. They aren't under anybody's authority. They're empty talkers. So they're speaking about something, but it has no weight to it. And they're deceivers. They're taking people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says here that they've actually caused whole families to, um, uh, to be upset. And, and, and they're doing this, it says, for shameful gain. It could have been for money. It could be for popularity. It might not be. But he says, this ought not to be. They ought not to be teaching these anti-elders. Then, in verse 12, he says a, a funny phrase. But what he's doing here is the, the island of Crete was known for its immorality. You could say it was the Las Vegas or something of its time. All right? Immorality. Uh, if you thought of a person from Vegas or from Crete, <laughs> you'd think drunkard. Or you'd think, you know, um, free sexually. So this is what he says. One of the Cretans, a prophet, most people believe this man was Epimenides, of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. (laughs) Paul is looking at a stereotype of these people. And he's saying that even in the life of the Christians or in this church, they're beginning to fulfill this stereotype. And these teachers that are coming in that are false teachers, they're deceiving them and they're feeding that in them. They're walking away from things because they're taking in these lies and they're acting in such a way that reflects not the truth but the lie. And therefore, he says, to help these people, he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound, again, sound healthy in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So rebuke, rebuke can seem harsh and mean, can seem difficult, but rebuke is actually a very good thing. 
Have you been rebuked and it felt good? Probably not. But have you been rebuked and has it been good for you? Yes. Rebuke is something as important to us as Christians. These, these, these men and women who are acting like their stereotype, they need to rebuke to be sound in the faith, to be healthy in the faith. Now, Paul makes this great distinction, though. He wants these guys to be, these false teachers to be identified completely. And so he says this about them in verse 15. To the peer, all things are pure. If someone's in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus has come upon them. So every aspect of them is clean and pure in Jesus. But those who are outside of Jesus, false teachers, deceivers. But to the defiled and unbelieving, that's these men, nothing is pure. But but their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Look at these words. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul wants these, these, these guys to be exposed because they're endangering the church. They're like a, a virus in the church, eating it away. He wants to expose them for the good of the, the church, for the health of the church. This is important. False teachers, they influence both doctrine and behavior. And um, they, 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 they preach half-truths, and that you think, oh, that seems right, but then the sneaky thing comes on the other side. And they live double lives. Their lives don't match up with the reality of the gospel. There's only one truth, and the speaker is only true if his life uh, mimics, matches up with that, that message. Exposing false teachers is for the health of the church. So this week... One of the things I wrestled with the most, it took me I, I, longer than it should have. I was wrestling with, how does this, how does this apply to us? Um, are, are we susceptible to these things? I was thinking in our church building, I don't remember the last person that, um, I, I know there's been a few people that have come in and have had some um, false things they've said, but it doesn't seem like it's a normal uh, occasion that we have often. We have membership, which... Um, helps balance. We have elders who correct. And so there's a lot of health in how the, the, the false teachers have a very difficult time getting into our midst. But I was thinking, I, I, so I was talking to a few people, so how, how does this relate to us in a way? Like, I'm sure there's some degree to this, but how does it relate to us? And the things, there was two things that really came up, and I'm going to bring them up. The first one is the online presence in TV. We are, there are, you can listen to a multitude of teaching and Bible teaching right now. And I think many people who sit in churches actually get more hours of listening to preaching outside the church than inside the church. And when that happens, guess what happens? There isn't the safety of the church. There isn't the elders and the members um, managing that. There's nowhere overseeing it. They're on their own and you're just listening and taking in. And when that happens, there's not the accountability when false teaching takes place. So you have to be very careful. I'm not saying don't listen to things. There's so many great things to listen to. But just be careful when you're doing so. False teaching can take root. And it's not that everything's false. It's the things that are on the side that are sort of snuck in. They begin to to change your thinking in your mind. Watch out for false teaching in that way. That's the first one. The, the second area that I was, again, talking to people and talking about this, this one, um, I hope I can do it in a way that's helpful. I think it's very important. 
But I don't want to, I know there might be different opinions in this area, so I hope I'm going to say it in a way that's helpful. Ask me questions later if, if I'm not as clear as I should be. But one of the things I've seen in the last couple years is there's a, a syncretism. Syncretism means Christianity mixed with something else. And it's the syncretism of conservative politics and the Christian views, Christian doctrine. Those views is not right. It, it's conservative politics mixed with Christianity in a way that they become merged. And people begin to think that their conservative politics is the same thing as biblical doctrine. It, it, it's, it's wrong and it's false teaching. Heather and I um, and our family went um, on sabbatical this summer and we visited a, a number of churches. And we went to these churches. There was, there was a lot of politics from the pulpit. A lot of discussions about things that were about American rights and American liberties in a way that's not Christian doctrine. But when you talk about rights and liberties at the same time as you're from the pulpit talking, it can be confusing. If I come down here and we're having a one-on-one conversation and we're talking about politics together, that's one thing. But when I'm up here and talking about the Bible and theology and the gospel, and I'm talking about the same time, it's a mixture. It's a syncretism that hurts people. It's the same thing as not just at the pulpit. If you're talking with a, a friend or an unbeliever and you're talking about politics at the same time as you're talking about Christianity, it's confusing. And it can be a misrepresentation of the truth. It's an addition to the truth. And we have to be careful with that. I'm going to give one specific example, and hopefully this doesn't cause all kinds of trouble, but I'm going to do it. Um, vaccines. Do you ever remember people talking about vaccines in the church before COVID? I can't think of once. There, there may be a time that people talked about vaccines. And it doesn't, in some sense, matter what you think of vaccines, whether you like them or you don't like them. But from the pulpit on vacation, I, I, there was people talking about vaccines from the pulpit and religious exemptions to vaccines. Now, here's my question about that. Is it a religious exemption? Or is it just that I don't like vaccines and I think that I can mix that in with my religion, with my Christianity? I think, I'm pretty confident of this, vaccines aren't a Christian doctrine. Jesus has never talked about vaccines. And when that gets mixed in with Christianity, it's confusing. It's all right to have an opinion. It's all right to choose or not to do that. But to say that it's mixed that in with Christian doctrine, it really is false teaching, which ought not be. It's fine to have a view, but not to mix it with the gospel. These are the kind of things I, I think this is realistic for our time. We need to consider. And it's not just about vaccines, for sure. There's many other things that you can think about. Let's say you're on a liberal, more of a liberal perspective. Well, what about like environmental policy or something? So this is for all of us. But think about it. When you're talking about Christianity, don't mix our personal political views with the doctrine of the gospel. I hope that's as clear as I can be. We are a people not of this world. Not of this world. Remember, truth of the gospel lived out in our lives, but all under the, under the, the umbrella that we are on our, our way to eternity. So the things that we should care about more than anything else is not current politics or current things, but the view of eternity. That that's where we're going, that's where we're headed, and that's what's most important is the gospel. We don't want to conflate the gospel with anything else in this world. To conclude, I want to, um, Jonathan, 
um, McNichol, um, Jason Murrock, Mark Bethune, I think is right up there, um, Stephen um, Brucker, and myself are the elders here at this church. And I just, I, I encourage you to pray for us, uh, pray for us in our weaknesses, uh, pray that we would grow in our, our, our character, uh, pray that we would grow in our ability to communicate the good news. We are, um, we are, weak, we are weak men that have all kinds of issues, and hope we're, hopefully we grow in being um, free to share those things with you all and the, and the body so God might build us up. And I also encourage you to, if you, I, I would encourage you, if you're someone who thinks, you know, I, would, I could do a better job than they could, then I pray that you become an elder um, and you can help in these things. But focus on your, your character first. Focus on your character first. In addition, let's all pray for one another that we would do these things. Not just elders, all of us. We would be praying that we would keep the truth, that we would live out in our lives, and we think of things from an eternal perspective versus the here and now because we can get confused. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I pray you would apply these things to our lives, that we would leave from here and uh, be changed. Lord, if, if there's things I said or misspoke in a certain way, that you would um, help me be humble and uh, corrected in those things. But if there's things that are real and true and convicting, I pray they would be applied to our lives and they would change us for the better. In Jesus' name, amen.